So, 30 years to the day, there's a new podcast out, one day at a time, looking back on a daily basis at Italia 90. Well, we can compete with that. Introducing our own spectacular new podcast, looking back twice daily at Italia 1934. So welcome to Lockdown Football, the name of which is definitely going to change very, very soon. Will Downing with you alongside Mark Rodden, Dimitri Juli, Stefan Jorni, who's out walking his dog at the moment. So we've got Con Murphy along. Hello, Con. How are you getting on? You're back working as well, which is brilliant news. Yeah, uh, two Portuguese games last week and two more to come this week. The Primeira Liga is back and uh, it's kind of back with a bit of a bang uh, in some Respects when you look at the uh, race for the title between Benfica and Porto. Couldn't be closer. Nine games to go. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, we'll touch about it in the news in a few moments' time, is none of the three big teams in action actually won. i got to say, it's a lovely-looking day in Tala there, by the way. <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. Um, that's my wallpaper behind me, by the way. <laughs> Tala Stadium. It looks great. Not full, but it does look great. Oh, it'd be great to see it full uh, when when those days do come back. I don't know how far away that's going to be, but uh, I know at least the teams uh, here in Ireland are back training today as a group for the first time, which is uh, great to see. There has to be a concern about the future of some clubs. Obviously, quite a few have now let all their staff go, playing staff and non-playing staff. And obviously, a lot of games for a few months are going to be played without any match day revenue. And there's a lot of clubs that are close to the line, even you know, in normal circumstances. My personal opinion is that I, I don't think we can come through this without some sort of government subvention. Uh, this is a, a, a business. I know everybody who follows a football team follow them for the love of it. But essentially... This is an industry in Ireland that needs support. Uh, they're just totally unique circumstances. And as you say, Will, I mean, some clubs have had to lay everybody off. Other clubs have been uh, managing to pay the uh, the staff in full. Or in the case, for example, of Shamrock Rovers, the players actually went to the board and um, basically said that they'd be happy to take a 25% pay cut in the uh, circumstances just to you know, ride the storm more or less. Um, but I do think there's going to be, you know, people are looking at the FAI and asking questions of what they can do. Um, I think the FAI, you know, they're in consultation with the clubs throughout, but I do think eventually uh, there's going to have to be some sort of government support just for this season. I mean, this is a unique year that we're in. Everybody knows that. And it's just so important that the league survives and prospers. And I think the only way it can do is with some sort of government support. And it's been an awkward time for the FEI anyway for the past couple of years. And then something like this comes along where even if you've been wonderfully organised and everything's gone swimmingly, this is the biggest crisis that's hit world sport in 100 years or, well, at least 70. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, just taking the example of Shamrock Rovers, um, before the season, they had a, a record season ticket sales um, which was, you know, uh, a great start to the season financially for the club and it, it was money in the bank. The question has to be asked, for the people who bought those season tickets, are they due some sort of a, a refund? Can they, you know, if they can't obviously attend the matches between now and the end of the season, do they expect a, a full refund? 
or in some cases, given that they're supporters of the club, will they kind of write it off and say, look, we're not going to put the club under pressure by asking for a refund on our season ticket. But you could argue as consumers, they probably are entitled to some sort of a refund, um, given that they're not going to be able to attend the matches. So even things like that for the clubs is a huge concern because obviously Rovers would have banked on that money in the bank, if you, if you, if you like, for ongoing costs. Also, they're losing match day revenue, which in, in the case of the bigger clubs would be fairly substantial. I, th- I think a lot of the clubs are doing their best with fundraising efforts and, you know, fans are organizing table quizzes and so on, which will only go so far. I mean, it's not going to be the, uh, the panacea to all their, their ills. So, uh, you know, it's a very, very difficult situation. I don't know what the answer is. We regularly see Rovers in Europe. That's another bit of potential revenue for a few rounds at the very least. And right now we don't know when next season's Champions League is going to kick off. We don't know when this season's is going to finish at the moment. Or even where it's going to be played. I mean, there have been rumours over the weekend that uh, Lisbon is going to host the Champions League final now in the current uh, situation. uh, The Europa League and Champions League could be going to, to Lisbon. In terms of the European situation, Will, um, again, it's a difficulty for the clubs. I know in Ireland they have this uh, four-game uh, round-robin tournament for clubs who are involved in Europe. But even in terms of the gate receipts from those games, which are now going to be you know, non-existent, the money from UEFA, there's question marks about whether it's going to be the full amount that the clubs will again have have based their financial projections on will they get the full uh, amount? I think is, there's still a slight question mark about that. So even Europe, which is supposed to be this this wonderful money tree for especially for the smaller leagues, uh, it's in doubt. And again, for the clubs trying to plan, huge difficulty. Obviously, we know you've been watching quite a bit of Portuguese football for professional reasons in the past week. Have you been watching anything else? Um. I have to be absolutely honest. Uh, <laughs> I haven't only uh, because I can't uh, access uh, one or two of the channels. I don't have them all at home and I can't go to the pub to watch them. So I have to hold my hands up and say, I haven't seen your Polish games, which seem to be going down really well. Just, I just I'm going by uh, social media. The response has been very, very uh, positive. Yeah, but that's only because you don't know the Polish swear words. <laughs> actually that came up in the Portuguese the other night as well I got a, a tweet during one of the games because um, obviously with no crowd noise well certainly at the first game I was doing for Malacau there was, there was no uh, crowd noise at all and apparently the, the language is quite choice from the players and uh, very audible as well so um, I think that's maybe going to be a bit I, I wonder if it's going to be an issue in the uh, Premier League when it comes back as well you know because players they're just used to swearing and spitting and doing stuff that they're not supposed to be doing at the moment Um, but I think we're going to see plenty of it It's the thing though as a broadcaster if there's a mic nearby or you know in my case children don't you find that there's just an automatic filter that switches in maybe it's years of experience um, and the fact that we're actually being paid not to talk ourselves into trouble but it's the same thing in Polish like um, I was told a couple of days afterwards you you, you do realise there was an immense amount of horrible Polish swearing in your games I said no Um, thanks for telling me now (laughs) well I found out at half time in the Portuguese game that uh, there was an awful lot of it as well and I mean actually I did say you know if, if you're hearing any language that might be a bit on the uh, 
fruity side, you know, apologies, but that's the nature of it at the moment. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think too many people are too um, upset by, by language in this day and age. I know. I think you ha- have to apologise, even if the swearing is in a different language, because I remember Children's BBC got into massive trouble. They used to have a kind of a Beatles about type show, a prank show. And uh, this was about 15 or 20 years ago. There was a Greek woman or a London Greek Cypriot woman who uh, had been pranked and who had a wild reaction, said loads of stuff in Greek, which went out on air because the producers didn't know any different. And it turned out there was a massive amount of swearing in Greek in a children's program and children's BBC got into a bit of trouble for that. So it's probably best to apologise just in case. Some people will sometimes ask us, why do you have to apologise? But of course, broadcasting rules are are, are different in different places. So you have to be quite careful. Um, In terms of me, obviously for professional reasons, I'm now watching Polish football, which means a lot of homework. But thank you very much, Legia Warsaw, for scoring three goals against Wisła Krakow yesterday because I've had 3-1-0 so far and lots of disallowed goals been following a couple of our previous guests as well I noticed that Marcus Pum since we interviewed him hasn't started a game for Flora Talon but they're top now Levadia lost midweek and they won their big derby away at Namakalu yesterday Um, and our old friend Ayat Suvari was hosting that on Estonian TV so nice to see that and in terms of the um, women's Bundesliga in Germany the Frauen Bundesliga three Irish players there they're all in the one relegation fight but Diane Caldwell's SC Sand won at the weekend at MSV Duisburg, the club of Claire O'Reard, and Duisburg are now 10 of the 12, and Cologne, for whom Amber Barrett is suspended at the moment, they're in the relegation zone, but they did win. They beat Essen, so they have a chance of staying up. That's the women's Bundesliga. Honved won the Hungarian Cup with fans in the stadium. They were 2-1 winners over first-time finalist Mezkovezd. Poland is set to open their doors soon, and La Liga returns this Thursday night. We've heard Monday night of the death of former Ireland international Tony Dunn, a League Cup and European Cup winner with Manchester United, the latter famously over Benfica at Wembley in 1968. He played 33 times for Ireland and was 78 years old at the time of his passing. We'll do much more on him in a later edition. And Michel Prudhomme is stepping down as standard Liège coach to concentrate on being club vice president. Former Aston Villa boss Remy Gard is set to be his replacement. Dimitro, what have you been watching this week then? Uh, first of all, I'm very glad the Portuguese league is back. I've always loved it ever since I started commentating on it back in 2005. So for me, it's more than three big clubs. So I tried to watch all those smaller teams and there were some really good games like Portimonense who are in the relegation battle, beat Gil Vicente in the very first game after the league returned. Then Maritimo were out playing Vittorio Setubal and still considered a late equaliser. And there was a game, Santa Clara Braga, which gave you an answer to a question you might ask when you watch Braga attack. And they, they're a beautiful side to watch. And you would want to ask, why aren't they competing for the title alongside Porto Benfica? In the very same game you give... They give you an answer. They lost 3-2, even though they were 1-0 up and 2-0 up. Francisco Trincao, who was signed by Barcelona, was good. The whole team played brilliantly. And then something clicks, something changes, and they conceded those goals. They were down to 10 as well, and they conceded the third goal in the injury time. Mark, what have you been watching this week? Yeah, well, we'll be, we'll be uh, talking about Portuguese football later, I guess. Um, but saw a fair bit of the Bundesliga too. A couple of nice talking points I think we'll we'll leave Bayern to one side you talk about Robert Lewandowski can he beat 
the uh, 40 goal record of Gert Muller for one season well he's suspended next week along with Thomas Muller so we'll all be watching the uh, bottom team Paderborn and their Albanian player Klaus Jazula because he has a chance to break a Bundesliga record for most yellow cards he picked up his 16th in just 26 games um, at the weekend so one more in the last few games he'll break a record and uh, I watched Union Berlin against Schalke um, Schalke in terrible form under David uh, Wagner and Union not quite safe but uh, interestingly one all draw and uh, they were not quite roared on but uh, there were a few noisy supporters socially distant, uh, distanced rather um, in the forest just outside the ground there were apparently about 30 but you could hear them loud and clear um, on the TV broadcast so uh, fans may be coming back uh, a little bit and even though they're not supposed to It actually happened in Estonia as well because their lockdown is almost uh, shut now but Nomakaliu's ground on the edge of Tallinn is again in a park so there were quite a lot of fans we couldn't see them in shot but maybe 100 or 200 playing drums and stuff and you could hear them the whole time. It was a bit like the atmosphere of Benfica over the tunnel last week, which we'll ask you about later, Con. Stefan, how are you getting on? What have you been watching this week? And um, you've had your time walking the dog. Hope he's well. Yeah, absolutely well. And uh, I was watching the French League. Oh, sorry. Yeah, they're not back. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, well. Sorry. But of course, that is one of the tales of the week because uh, there's been a really bad reaction to everyone else pretty much kicking off. And it's only France, Belgium, the Netherlands and Scotland. And Cyprus, as I've learned in the past couple of days, who've, who've called a halt to their leagues. It, it, the row rumbles on. Yeah, on the most serious note, uh, yeah, I watch a bit of Bundesliga. Not entirely the game, but I watch uh, Bayern Munich against uh, Bayer Leverkusen. And again, Munich, when they have, you know, to, uh, to go through another game, you know, they're quite impressive with the new manager. And uh, so it's, again, you know, they, they bet you comfortably uh, Bayer Leverkusen. And I watch a little bit of Leipzig against uh, Paderborn. One all, and uh, it's really disappointing again for the German uh, league that you hope as yeah one club at least will uh, be a serious uh, title contender uh, for Bayern. But uh, it's disappointing every season. You can see both Dortmund doing quite well and uh, Leipzig, but it seems in the second half of the season they struggle to uh, to catch a Bayern, and uh, Bayern is is going stronger and stronger and. Uh, and you can see, like, uh, maybe a potential winner for the Champions League. They are very impressive. Uh, so there's no weaknesses at the back and uh, they're, they're very solid. And there's competition for places. And uh, I looked as well a little bit of uh, the uh, Portuguese League. And um, what struck me, Benfica is really, like, you know, in a serious crisis. And uh, Braga, obviously, uh, completely uh, missed game against uh, Santa Clara. That was a bit of disappointment, but uh, going back to Benfica, it's it's uh, it's a serious uh, well serious issues over there at the club, and uh, maybe Con uh, can tell us a little bit more about that. But apparently, like uh, some uh, players have seen uh, the house has been vandalized by some supporters, and uh, that's when the news you know came out today. And uh, so I don't know if Benfica will recover from that. It's a massive club in Portugal and in Europe historically, and uh, so that was more or less my weekend. Uh, well, isn't it great that we are actually getting weekends of football again? But that dominance of Bayern Munich in Germany, it is, I mean, for me, pound for pound, it is the best league around, I think. But it's just a shame it's going to be eight in a row for Bayern. Absolutely unprecedented. And, you know, it's almost like killing the golden goose. It's like we've had a discussion about this before, that American sporting ambassadors have had a look at the European leagues and said, well, this 
we we wouldn't stand for this. I know you've had the Patriots, obviously, who've dominated a lot over the last 15 years, but even they haven't won eight in a row, and the Patriots are a bit of an outlier in terms of American sports. We now have a situation where basically France, Italy, Germany, we've had the same champion for multiple years in a row, bar that Monaco blip in France. Spain, it's been three clubs basically since around 2003. Scotland, two clubs since 1986, when Hearts fell over in the last day. Thankfully, England's still competitive and hopefully will be for a long time. Yeah, especially this season, they're very competitive. You can see that in, in Premier League. Yeah, I think, you know, this discussion we had, you know, a few, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I, I, I believe that uh, it's not necessarily like, you know, Bayern or PSG um, or Real, it's more or less, you know, the other clubs, what, what are they doing basically to compete and to be a serious contender? I know money, you know, is, is a huge, it's a huge you know, aspect of the game, but it's not everything. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I was hoping a little bit more from Dortmund this season, especially from Leipzig. They can't, you know, really compete with Bayern. And uh, I, I don't know exactly what's, you know, the, the issue for those clubs. I know Leipzig is a, it's a kind of a newcomer into the Bundesliga. They, may, they might need a, a little bit more time, but... Uh, it's it's amazing that Bayern, you know, can dominate, you know, the Bundesliga that you know that much for the last, you know, eight or well, twenty, thirty years, like you name it, and they've been there all the time, and they have the ability to uh, to sign players who can fit completely the club and the ethos of the club and the culture of the club. The worry is as well, Dortmund missed their chances the last couple of years. Um, Leipzig are going to lose Timo Werner. Bayer Leverkusen actually, strangely. Uh, we're missing Kai Havertz against Bayern Munich. He's got nine goals and I think 12 games since the turn of the year, since going into more uh, central attacking role, a few assists as well. He missed out with uh, supposedly a minor injury. And the talk is that maybe he could be on his way to Bayern in the summer as well. So if they get someone like him to add to their already really strong squad, then um, whatever about the Champions League, it's uh, certainly going to be... Hard to see past Bayern for the Bundesliga next season as well. Yeah, it's been quite a full weekend for me as well because obviously the Polish League, something I I only worked on briefly maybe six or seven years ago, so working on everything from scratch. By the way, the next edition of this, it's not going to do with football. It'll be a little bonus edition because uh, a commentary colleague of ours has written a new book on uh, a well-known prominent international athlete. The interview was done on Saturday morning, so so long as nothing happens between then and when it's due to go out on Wednesday, we're going to have a 30-minute interview about the new French-language biography on Con. McGregor. I'm really looking forward to it and hopefully Connor does nothing in the next... Oh well, may as well throw it in the bin then. Um, so Con, Portugal's back. I mean, it's great news for everybody. And the thing which I suppose struck me, I've watched the three games on TV, they're live on free sports, live on Premier Sports available on so many platforms. Uh, so great that the Benfica DJ decided to play out some crowd noise over the tannoy, which made it sound a little bit more natural, I think, on uh, the other night. He played an absolute... He was actually the best Benfica player on the night. Uh, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Uh, he did a brilliant job. I mean, first of all, the setup of the stadium at the uh, Stadio Delusion was, was quite good. I mean, obviously, it's a massive stadium, you know, almost 60,000 seat or empty, but they had... Um, scarves on these sort of cardboard cutouts over each uh, seat. So although it wasn't human beings in the stadium, it gave an impression of some, it wasn't just an empty seat background. 
And then, you know, from the very get-go, once the, cl- the, the two teams came out, um, he played a video of the Benfica club anthem on the big screens, which kind of set the tone as the, the, uh, the non-handshakes were, were taking place. They had the usual eagle fly around the stadium, which always gets a great uh, reaction when there's a crowd in the stadium. And then once the match started, I, I was really amazed because um, he had the, the crowd noise playing over the tannoy, which was great, but it absolutely matched the action on the pitch. So, you know, if somebody had a shot from 20 yards and it just, uh, you know, whizzed past the post, you'd kind of get an ooh from the crowd and, you know, a round of applause. And, and if, you know, one of the opposing team committed a foul, he was able to play in, you know, the boos and the whistles or a contentious refereeing decision. Again, you know, the whistles and the jeering from the crowd. It absolutely added to um, the occasion. I don't know how feasible it's going to be for every club to, to do something like that. Obviously, the sound system in Lisbon is just brilliant. Um, so it worked very well. So I would have to say 10 out of 10 to Benfica for that. It, even for the audience watching on TV, I think it added to the experience. They didn't just have my voice drawing on. That's the thing as well. You have to watch out for it because, I mean, I have done quite a few you know, closed doors matches previously. And the thing is, you find you have to talk quite a bit more to fill the gap because, I mean, the the, the very first Polish game I did, which was the start of last weekend, Lech Poznan against Legia Warsaw, that's normally filled 40, 50,000. It will be a raucous atmosphere because it's Poland. It's two teams that hate each other, two of the most successful sides, and there will be large periods during the game where you just sit back and you deliberately say nothing and you want the crowd to just leap out of the TV at everyone. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. And I mean, even, uh, you know, that club anthem that was played on the big screen in, in Benfica, when that is sung live in the stadium, it's one of those hair stand up on the back of your neck uh, moments. It's a marvellous, uh, you know, build up to, to kick off, which... You know, obviously, without the crowd being there, it's not quite the same when it's on the big screen. But I mean, they did their best, and that's probably more than can be said for Benfica, who really uh, struggled in that game against uh, Tondela. And and you know, it ended up with, as Dimitro was saying there, um, I think it was Rafa Silva, Pizzi, and Alex Grimaldo, and the coach Bruno Lage all had their houses uh, vandalized, and two of the players were injured. Um, Julian Weigel, the, the German, and uh, Zivkovic, when the uh, club bus was um, hit by rocks as it uh, left the stadium and, and went back to their training centre. And those two players had to attend hospital. So, I mean, obviously, we've had the situation in Portugal before when the sporting players were attacked on their training ground um, a couple of seasons ago. And that only went uh, to, to court, actually, over the last few weeks. But it, I don't know what it suggests, but I was really surprised because, um, you know, OK, Benfica struggled against a team that you'd expect them to beat in Tondela. But they are still top of the table uh, on goal difference from Porto with nine games to go. So it's not exactly uh, crisis time. Their form before the break wasn't great. And obviously all the Portuguese teams in Europe had, a. I think you'd have to mark it down as a bad year. Um, so there is that undercurrent of, of discontent because as well there's a lot of talk of uh, players moving on and, and both Porto and Benfica saying they're going to have to sell some of their best players to make up for the shortfall of lack of European money. So I, I can understand that the fans are a bit peed off, but attacking your own team bus 
and um, you know vandalizing your players' houses. To me, that isn't how you go about supporting a football team. But it seems to be something that, like you've said, it's cropped up in Portugal a few times. And I mean, I've worked on the Portuguese league for a few seasons also. That situation with sporting a couple of seasons ago was was quite bizarre. I, I can't recall coming across something like that at such a big team previously. And now it happens again. It's, it's, yeah. it's quite strange. It's, it's terrible. Um, and I think that attack in, uh, on the players, the, the sporting players a couple of years ago, it actually affected the club quite seriously. And I think, you know, there was a lot of players who talked about leaving. Some, some did uh, quite soon after that. And, you know, when it got to the point where players were physically attacked, as they were in that case, you know, you have to say, how committed to the team can they be when their own supporters, I know supporters in inverted commas, they were thugs, but um, it has to affect the mindset a bit. And likewise, I'd wonder now for somebody like Julian Weigel, who's, who's come uh, to Portugal only in the last few months, he's got to be sitting on, you know, at home now thinking, Gee, Marcus, what what is this? You know, what kind of supporters are these if they're going to throw rocks at, at our bus? You know, he could have lost an eye or, you know, anything could have happened. All the more so gone with Weigel because uh, he was part of the Dortmund squad that were uh, attacked, not by a fan, obviously, but uh, before the Champions League quarterfinal against Monaco uh, three years ago. And he's spoken about that before, that he lived quite near where that incident happened, so he was reminded of it. Um, and exactly, like, what's what's he going to think now? Yeah, well, I think he'll be taking a taxi to the matches from now on instead of getting on the team bus. You know, uh, how unfortunate as well was he to be, you know, one of the players who actually got hit by the flying glass. Mm. And they had to go to hospital. I mean, we're talking about a serious uh, issue here. It's not just a pebble bouncing off the window. It's, it's broken glass and players being injured. And, uh, you know, the president has come out uh, in the last day or so, kind of obviously denouncing the, the people who were vandalizing the players' houses. But suddenly those players now have to start thinking about personal security. And when you're talking about focus and, you know, nine matches to go in quite a short period of time between now and the end of July, it's going to take a lot of mental strength as well as physical strength to try and go on and win this league and I think that could be really damaging to uh, Benfica I really do Yeah it's interesting that Fabio Martins uh, from Alicao player he's on loan from Braga tweeted after all that happened do you really think that by stoning the bus by vandalizing the houses you can motivate players and then he said okay now give me an explanation but without that crap of telling me they're earning millions so they have to perform and it was a very interesting reaction from a player to what happened to his colleagues because it's really difficult to imagine how Benfica players are going to compete for the title now because Ports are, are really in a bad shape they lost to Fumalikau and they, yeah, that's what we talked about when we had Tom uh, on the podcast when we talked about Porto struggling to get results in some of the games and they didn't get the results of Benfica yeah, they did have a perfect chance they couldn't take that chance, but there were still so many games to go. And what you do is just go and you do this to your own place. That's hard to understand, but sometimes that happens in Portugal. In other countries as well, especially in Brazil, for example, but it's not what you would want to see, of course, especially now for Benfica. 
Yeah, I don't big... know, uh, Will, if you've seen in the Polish games, but certainly my impression watching the uh, games in Portugal this weekend was that, you know, after a three-month break, match fitness is not there. And a lot of players were going down with cramp 15 minutes from the end. And just sharpness, like Rafa Silva had a chance in the first minute against Tondela, which I would have put a lot of money on him scoring. But he mishit the shot slightly. The goalkeeper saved it. Um, and Benfica had lots of chances. Tondela defended stoutly and really well, I have to say. But in the normal course of events, I think Benfica, had they just been that bit sharper, would have probably taken that game one or two nil. Um, but everybody was just a little bit... I mean, the, the, I think it was it five out of the top six teams uh, in Portugal failed to win uh, this weekend. There's a, there is, I think there's going to be a few weeks before teams really hit full tilt. And that's understandable. The Benfica fans didn't take that into account when they were stoning the bus, you know. Some clubs, you know, some supporters will be very passionate about it and uh, they will go the extra mile to make sure to express the feelings, you know, to the players. And I've seen exactly the same case, the same thing, you know, in Marseille a few times. Uh, Marseille is, uh, is a very popular club and uh, I think it was in, in the uh, 1999, uh, Marseille lost 5-1 in Saint-Etienne. And in that team in Marseille, you had uh, Laurent Blanc, Pires, uh, Christophe Dugarry, they have won the World Cup. I mean, they, they were all like, you know, big players at the time. And basically what happened, it's very straightforward. The, the, Dugarry was attacked physically at the training ground by the supporters. Uh, Robert Pires, you know, saw his car as well, you know, being vandalized. And, and they, they, you know, some clubs, yes, yeah, supporters will make, you know, uh, very clear to the players. They're not happy about the, uh, the performance and this pressure. And, uh, and now the question is for Benfica, are you going to react, you know, to that kind of pressure if the supporters are, or let you down, and uh, that could have you know a serious effect, you know, psychologically and 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 to some extent the performance on the pitch as well. And it's funny where you mentioned Con, does uh, Benfica is still the league leader, and so we're talking about a crisis. It's it's remarkable. The only thing is that'll come down to head to head after the final match day, and Porto beat Benfica twice this season. That's that's one reason. And but having said that, Porto have to play Sporting and they have to play Braga on the last day, so. Benfica have Rio Ave and Familicao, I think, as tough games to come. But the other thing, you mentioned rustiness, Con, um, goalkeepers. We have to talk about goalkeepers. Oh, I mean, the, the, in the Porto game at Famalicao, scoreless and Marchesin with a clearance from the goal line that went straight to Fabio Martins, who uh, tapped it into an empty net. I mean, in terms of goalkeeping howlers, that's right up there. And of course, it gave Famalicao a great boost of confidence. Um, in fairness, Porto got back into it, the, the equaliser from uh, Jesus Corona. Uh, but as they've done, I mean, Porto have lost three matches this season. They've lost them all by two goals to one. And in every instance, they went 1-0 down, got it back to one all, And about 15 minutes from time, they conceded a second goal and lost 2-1, as they did here Um uh, but that goalkeeping error from Marchesin was was really, uh, it's one of those ones where, you know, he wants the ground to open up and swallow him because uh, it was a, desperate. It was followed the next night by two in the uh, Vittoria Sporting game. So Douglas came out, basically chested the ball down for Andras Sporar to tap in for the opener for Sporting. And then Luis Maximia- Maximiano, the uh, Sporting goalkeeper, just... Uh, Passed it straight to uh, Joseph Amoa, I think it was, for the equaliser as well. So um, they need to 
get back to work, the goalkeepers. Borar looks like he could be a good signing, by the way. Two goals. Yeah, yeah very good. His second goal was really well taken. So um, I think Celtic were, were in for him as well uh, in January. And he's replacing a player as much as Sporting have struggled over the last couple of years in Bastos that was superb in terms of his output in Portugal. I think it was 93 goals and 130 games or so. Um, I think he's got four and eight now in the league. Looks really good. And and Sporting in general look good because uh, they're playing a different style under the, the new coach Ruben Amarim and he gave two players a debut, um, Mateus Nunes and Eduardo Caresma. Apparently Caresma is being very closely watched already. Um, so oh, yeah, 18 lo- or something. Yeah, 18, first game, Portuguese under 19. Uh, I love hearing that. You know, guys who haven't played a senior game, but they're wanted by everyone already. Um, he had some tough moments. He was up against a good winger, but looked really solid. Good, tall defender, good on the ball. And uh, he had another promising player coming through in Portugal. In terms of goalkeeping errors, I mean, I had one in the very first game I did, which was like Poznan, Legia Warsaw uh, the weekend before last. Mickey van der Hart, who played in the aid of his E for a few seasons, and I know a few of you know him because he played for Peck Zwolle, and also, great name, there will be a few Mickey Hart lines come out sometime soon. But he managed, early on, uh, he's the like Poznan goalkeeper now this season, managed to punch the ball out in a clearance off the back of his central defender, and then Tom Pycart tapped it in for the only goal in the game after 15 minutes. It, it looked to me in that game, certainly with Lech and Legia being elite teams, if you like, in the extra classer, that they were up for it. There was no problem with commitment. There was no real problem with fitness. But then when you do a few sides like, we'll say, Krakowia, who were third, but who've now lost six in a row, that they haven't really been in it. And Wisła Krakow seemed to raise their game a bit to play against Legia yesterday and scored and had another one ruled out late on, but then just sort of faded away in the last 20 minutes. So it seems to me the best sides in Poland, from the evidence I've seen so far in a couple of weekends, are on it. But in Portugal, maybe they just need another game or two, certainly the big sides. And also another strange statistic in Germany is that wasn't it for the first three weekends out of a total of some like 24 games, there were only five home winners? Mm. So I don't know if that's going to happen in Portugal. Um, and obviously there are nine weeks to go, nine match days to go, and it's dead level between the top two and the only two who can now win it. It's going to be a great race, I think, for the title between the two of them. As Mark was saying, there's some big games still for both of them to play. But even games against the teams, like you'd expect, for example, Benfica against Tom Della, if you looked at the bookmakers' odds before that game, it was a, a no-brainer. Benfica were going. It was a question of how much Benfica were going to win by. But Tondela are just six place, six points above the uh, relegation zone. It's going to be tight enough down at the bottom, I think. And every team is going to be playing, uh, you know, scrapping for points at the bottom, defending with everything they've got. And, I mean, we saw uh, Porto Menens winning against uh, Gilles Vicente. Um, so not, I don't think any of the games are going to be easy. I mean, for, for example, Benfica travel to Portimao this week to take on Porto Menens on Wednesday. Tight little ground, you know, Portimonen scrapping for every point. I think that's going to be another difficult game for Benfica. So I don't think there's any gimme three-point matches anymore. Um, and especially with the games coming thick and fast, One, you know, um, you know, they're squeezing a lot of games into quite a condensed period of time. So I think the race in Portugal, I know you were talking earlier on about, you know, it being too easy for Bayern Munich and, you know, the situation in Italy and so on as well. But I think... The neck and neck between Benfica and Porto for the title in Portugal is going to be a, a really good one. And also, 
the race for European spots because with five clubs in Portugal now qualifying for Europe with the um, Benfica and Porto due to face each other in the cup final, it means that race for fifth spot. All the teams who are like eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, they're all scrapping for, for those points as well. So I think ev- nearly every game in Portugal over the next while is going to be, there's going to be something at stake. Con, can I ask from an Irish point of view again? Um, it's something I think about a lot just watching the league. Marcus Edwards, um, really good young player for Vitoria Gimenez, scored the equaliser, nice goal. I think it was his fifth of the season. 21 um, from London, had a year in the Netherlands on loan, never played for Spurs. I think he had one game on loan at Norwich. Irish, English, Scottish players. It seems like it would be a good league for Irish players to move to. Obviously, we want the League of Ireland to do well, but um, if there is an option, I know Padre Garment had uh, a year with Passos de Ferreira. I look at Ryan Gold, who was hugely talented or hugely tipped for the top in Scotland. He's had a rocky road, but uh, joined Sporting. He's got promoted with uh, Ferenc. I think he's got nine goals. It looks like a league to me that some Irish players should be playing in. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I I know Porter Gammon found it a little bit difficult because I think he just found it hard to settle. In Pasos de Pereira are a club in a, a pretty, you know, I would say small town club, not a whole lot going on. And because he didn't speak the language, I think he found it hard to settle in. I think uh, for players who might be in some of the bigger cities, it would be a bit easier there'd be a bit more English spoken and I think it would be just in terms of lifestyle a bit easier to settle in as well I mean I, I keep looking at somebody like Jack Byrne and Shamrock Rovers mm-hmm. thinking he could do I mean I, I, I honestly think he could play for Porto he could play for Benfica he could play for Braga he's that good um, now he's probably exceptional but there are other players I actually it's funny you should ask that question because I thought to myself I wonder could I become a an agent for Irish Portugal because there are clubs over there who would get Irish players for buttons and even to take the gamble and see if it worked. Um, The quality of the league in Portugal is obviously better than uh, the league in Ireland, but the best players in Ireland could play in Portugal without a doubt. Now I know I say Jack Byrne could play for the best teams and I do believe that, but even the you know to play for the mid-table teams or you know the teams who are struggling against relegation, they could use Ireland as a, a feeding ground, if you like, and and really benefit. I just don't think that connection has been made since the sort of the Porter Gammon days, but it's something I'd love to see because the type of football that's played there can quite often suit an Irish player much more than going to. I, I think Keith Fahey, for example, would have done really well in Portugal better probably than he did in England, albeit he had a very good career in England. The curious thing is, like we did a little focus on Estonia a couple of weeks ago and like the main TV presenter who hosted the World Cup for them and Marcus Poon, Mark Poon's son, the former Arsenal keeper who we spoke to last week, both said the same thing, that really in order to progress, in order for the international team to be better, it's imperative for the best domestic players to move abroad. End of story. And there's no real sadness about it, which I know there is a little bit in the League of Ireland. We, We want to see League of Ireland players in the Ireland team. But there's other countries where they feel it's a reality. You've got to leave. You want to improve. You've got to leave. Yeah, I, I think that's a, almost a no-brainer. And especially, I mean, 
as you know, you can look at the background behind me. I, I, I love Shamrock Rovers, but and I would hate <laughs> Jack Byrne leave Shamrock Rovers, but for his career, I think obviously it would benefit to, and I, I'd love to see him go to Europe instead of England. I, I really yeah. would, whether it's Portugal, Spain, France, you know, somewhere like that. I think he would be just so good in that kind of football. Well, Luke, you know, Con, I think, you know, Mark made a very good point as well. Just bouncing back about, you know, going to abroad, like we know, like, I mean, I mean, I've met Pat Dolan with Mark basically, um, you know, last year. And I know you had, you know, kind of contacts with Passos de Ferreira and uh, that could be a link, you know, from Irish players going to, um, to Portugal. However, yeah. again, you know, I have, I have some reservation, not, you know, with Irish players not being able to perform, you know, in, on the continent instead of going to England. But uh, you have to adjust very quickly to a different language, a different lifestyle, a culture, a different style of play. You know, it's extremely, you know, difficult. If you're isolated on your own, it's very, very challenging, especially yes. if you're on your own. But the thing is, you know, I've got in parallel as well, Ryan Gold is a Scottish player who left Dundee United very, very early, like uh, going to Sporting Club Portugal. I mean, I've done, you know, a few games. Uh, I cover a few games for, for Dundee and... I mean, he was a good player, but, you know, to, to move from Dundee to Sporting Club Portugal, also was a big jump for such a young player. And uh, it just proved the point that, you know, he never really made it. And uh, he was on loan to Vitor Setubal, Aves and Farense and ended up, you know, signing for Farense last season. I think it's a big jump still, like, for Irish players or Scottish players, you know, to go to a top club in Portugal. And I think Ryan Gaul epitomized perfectly the, uh, the, the, the situation of a young kid you know, presumably talented, but cannot make it, you know, to Sporting Club Portugal, one of the top clubs in in, uh, in that league. To be fair to him, though, the conditions when he joined were terrible. Like, Sporting have been a mess for years, so it's a difficult club to come into. And I think he was very young. I'm thinking more like Con, the age Jack Byrne is, that kind of player who's had a bit of experience. You think back, there there, there are a few links. Dominic Foley had a year in, in Portugal with Braga. Alan Mann was at Sporting as well. Phil Babb was part of the last sporting team to win the title back in 2002. It's, it's, it just seems to me the risk and the challenge is there, but the rewards, you know, the experience that you get playing in these big grounds and who knows who will spot you. But I think- if you go back further as well, there was um, Mickey Walsh uh, at Porto back in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was a big hero at, at Porto and, and re- he had a degree of success there. So... You're right, there is a, a link going back, but um, maybe it hasn't been farmed enough recently. I take your point, Stefan. I, th- I think the lifestyle thing is, is important. Like, I think that was one of the main reasons why Paul Gammond never really settled uh, with Passos because he didn't speak the language, he didn't have friends there. Living in a small town in, in the middle of Portugal, it was very hard for him to make that. Uh, because I think, you know, I, can't, I mean, looking at, you know, from the big clubs in Portugal, Benfica or Sporting Club Portugal or Porto, I mean, those guys are playing regularly like, you know, Europa League and Champions League and qualify, you know, even further to the uh, stage in Europe, in Europe. So, you know, to look for a player, you know, in Ireland, to bring value to the squad, is going to be extremely difficult, you know, to be yes. frankly honest. I mean... Those guys, if you're going to scout, you know, I mean, Jack Byrne, you know, is full of potential. They're looking at someone who can deliver, you know, their stage. And to me, the way for Jack Byrne is to perform and be, you know, regular for the, you know, the national team. And maybe you get, you know, get a chance to play for a bigger club. But it's, it's, it's a big ask, you know. Those clubs, they want, you know, players can deliver straight away. So the only way, you know, for me, like, 
you know, looking at from the outside, is to take the players at a young age, bring them to Portugal at age 17, 18, and trying to make the grade, you know, to play for the first team and get used, you know, to the culture and, you know, the playing style for the club. Because when you come at 24, 25, 26, 26 27, there's a high expectation, especially if they put money into it. So it's going to be very, it's, I think it's more challenging at 27 to go to those clubs than at 18 or 17 because you can bounce back to something else. But I don't think we're talking necessarily about them joining Porto, Sporting, Benfica, but an Irish player wants to live in Lisbon, they could join Belenenses. If in Porto it's Boavista, you know, they, they could join a, a mid-ranking team. You know, I gave the example of Marcus Edwards because he has joined a team that's played Europa League. I'm sure the club took a bit of a chance in him because he hadn't played all that much senior football. Even joining a, a, a team like Porto Menense, you know, down in the yeah. sense where that there'd be, you know, you'd be close enough to the Algarve and whatever. And I, I do think Jack Byrne is, when I talk about him playing for Porto or, or Benfica, or whatever, I, I think he's absolutely exceptional in terms of League of Ireland players. But just to give you an example, like say an Enda Stevens type fullback, if they were to sign him for 100 grand from Rovers, he plays a few games in Portugal and suddenly he's worth 2 million. So in terms of an investment, for uh, these clubs, it can. I, I think it could be very financially beneficial for them. Whether you know the player turns out to be a star player for them or not, I do think having gained game time in the Primera Liga, uh, they suddenly become worth more money. Um, so I think I think it's worth taking a chance for some of the Portuguese teams for sure. Well, it's never too late to set up a football agency. I can't... <laughs> Maybe let's talk after this, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> But in terms of career changes, I mean, obviously, we all knew you as a, as a TV presenter and, and a radio presenter, Sunday Sport, for many years and the League of Ireland coverage in RTE for a long time. So have you found the switch into commentary, which is a definite sort of turn right or left? Yeah, I don't know. What, is it left or right? I'm not sure. <laughs> what, whatever the good turn is, it's that. <laughs> well, I agree because um, I have to say it's, I've loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it's one of these ones where when I left RTE, I was at an age where I thought, if I don't leave now, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my working life. And it was around the time when uh, Colin Murray, um, who you'd all be familiar with, sadly died. And my pal, uh, Tony O'Donoghue, was uh, diagnosed with cancer at the time. And it just got me thinking. I said, do I want to do this for the rest of my life or do I want to just take a chance and, and try something else. And I decided to take the chance. Um, a bit of a gamble in the middle of a, the first recession. But it's been thoroughly enjoyable. And had I stayed in RTE, I don't think I would have ever done commentary because I was just seen as a presenter and, you know, that was my, my role. But I've loved it. Absolutely uh, loved it and I did go back to RTE for the uh, Olympics in Rio and I did some commentary for them then and a couple of European uh, athletics championships as well which again I would never have done had I stayed there so yeah it's 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 a great buzz isn't it? Absolutely is how, how are you finding this weird hinterland of cult European football that we're all in now? Yeah I, I love it I absolutely love it um, and do you know something I think one of the benefits of doing, a, say, a league like Portugal, for example, is you see so many of the good young players coming through, probably before anybody else does. I mean, I remember uh, Trincao, when I first saw him, I, I think I tweeted after the first match that I, I, I said, I, I saw a star playing tonight. 
and he had only come on for the last 15 minutes as a sub. And in that 15 minutes, he showed me enough to, to know that he was special. And even looking at somebody like Florentino at Benfica, who isn't really getting that much game time, and yet it seems a lot of clubs around Europe are, are sniffing him out. Joao Felix, when he came in at Benfica, again, to see him scoring goals regularly and his combination with Seferovic uh, up front for Benfica was really positive for them. And I think Seferovic has really missed him this season. But you're seeing these kids at 17, 18, 19 years of age playing at the, you know, at the top level with these clubs. And you can see, I always kind of feel a bit proud then when they move on. Like even when Ricardo, for example, moved to Leicester City, I said, I know all about him. I can tell you how good he is. You know? <laughs> um, so it doesn't necessarily even have to be the young guys. But I, I do feel a bit um, almost proprietorial over the Portuguese league. Like when they got knocked out of Europe this season, I was personally insulted almost. <laughs> um, so I've grown to really love it. And, you know, bar the messing at the Sporto training ground or the sporting uh, training ground and the the nonsense with the Benfica bus the other night and stuff. I have to say the Portuguese supporters, by and large, are great football fans, real football people, great supporters, even for the smaller clubs. So I love being part of it. Yeah, absolutely love it. And I'll tell you, I find exactly the same with Belgium. Um, I get really annoyed if their clubs do badly. I did... Who was it? It was... Was it Club Bruges when they were hammered by Atletico Madrid? And it's, it's just, just like, like... I mean, and you're watching great performance or like this season, Genk against Salzburg and you're watching history with Erling Haaland and it's a night that everybody's going to remember for years. It's like I, I worked on uh, Marcus Rashford's very first game for Manchester United against Norseland and he scores a hat-trick in that and you think, well, this is a night of history. This is brilliant. But then I'm seeing Genk, a side who I would like to see do well for professional and personal reasons, get absolutely tonked. But I mean, it's, a, it's quite a story. I hope I haven't misremembered this, but I recall you being very young, probably your first national broadcasting job, working on some very exciting football coverage as a host. Do you remember that? Were, were you on Century? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a long time. God, you're not old enough to remember that way. Bad news, I am. I dye my hair. <laughs> because Century used to take, I think it was the first station in Ireland to take the Saturday afternoon, English, it wasn't even Premier League back then, English football commentaries direct from Capital Gold, like Jonathan Pearce, Steve Wilson, Bobby Moore, Frank McClintock. And it was a, it was on FM. It was in the clear. Oh, that was magnificent. I, I loved listening to that every Saturday. If there wasn't a game on TV, I'd stick that on. It was dream stuff. It's that station uh, and that programme in particular uh, was interesting because at the time, RTE on a Saturday afternoon used to have Val Joyce on doing airs and races where he'd play a few tunes. And Val had a very uh, laid-back sort of style. And suddenly we kicked in, you Jonathan Pierce, you know, coming live from Stamford Bridge. And, and it did shake a few feathers in, in RTE and uh, actually Val Joyce got moved on pretty soon after that. Um, don't think he ever forgave me actually. But I, I'll tell you a story about uh, Century. It only, for those who don't remember it, it only lasted about two years and eventually it shut down. The uh, investors got cold feet and, and closed up a bit early when it still had a huge listenership and, and in today's money it was doing actually very well. But because it shut down as a station, one or two people didn't get paid uh, for money that was due to them. One of those people being Bobby Moore. And Bobby was quite, he, he, he kind of needed the money at the time, you know. 
And I went to a match at uh, Selhurst Park. Crystal Palace were playing somebody and I was in the press box. And Bobby Moore came over to me and berated me for the fact that Century Radio owed him, you know, £1,000 or whatever it was. And I had to kind of apologise and say, Bobby, look, I'm out of a job as well. You know, I, I'm sorry about this, but uh, they closed down, you know. But he was really angry and, and it made for a very uncomfortable evening for me sitting there two seats down from him, uh, having been given hell by Bobby Moore. But uh, And actually, sadly, he died not too long after that. But yeah, that, that's, geez, well, that's going back a long time. Actually, I, I was at a couple of matches with Jonathan Pierce at the time and I would never have pitched him as a BBC commentator at the time. And he, he, he toned it down a little bit for TV, but I, I, if you had said to me, that guy there is going to work for the BBC on TV, I, I would have said no, you know. But that was, it was incredible because like the style we were all used to at the time was BBC Radio, which was magnificent in its day. Peter Jones had sadly just passed away, but yeah. you had Brian Butler, you had Ingham and Green, who were their young commentators at the time. But it was almost very staid in comparison, it was medium wave. And that's not to knock it because that is also some of the most brilliant sports broadcasting that's ever been. But then you've got FM, it's Jonathan Pierce, and it was Jonathan Pierce, man, what an unbelievable goal! <laughs> and I think the line that a lot of people had about him at the time was, oh my word, it's gone out for a throw-in! And I've had that thrown at me as well. It was, it was like listening in black and white and then listening in color. It was just something yeah. entirely different. I mean, the big shame is, it just didn't last very long, but thankfully you're still around and, and working at all sorts of football, which is, uh, and, and like you've worked in athletics as well, which is another you will have enjoyed because that is oh. one brilliant sport to work in at the highest level. It, it's great. I mean, I have to say, uh, and I think you'd probably agree, Will, doing commentary on athletics requires such an amount of homework and just the, the amount of stuff you have to prep. At least in a football match, you know there's going to be you know, you, you can prep for 25 players on each team or whatever. In a, in a track and field event, you could be prepping for maybe, I, I don't know, would it be 200 athletes that you need to have your information on? There's a huge amount of work involved, but I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I hope to do more in the future. But um, yeah, no, I, I really, really love doing the, the athletics. Yeah, and the atmosphere around athletics, I find, and the access itself is is quite brilliant. And we normally, sometimes when we bring a guest on, uh, sorry to throw this at you, um, commentary heroes, is there anybody you really would have idolised and even presenters when you were growing up or, or even now? Presenter-wise, definitely. There was only uh, one for me and, and the, the Irish people would probably not forgive me. Although he is Irish, Des Lynham. I always thought Des Lynham, for me as a presenter, was just calmness personified he had a sense of humor he had a good voice he asked the right questions i just i thought he was head and shoulders above everybody else uh still do actually he would be numero uno uh for me in terms of commentary i i there isn't necessarily one who quite stands out the same way although i barry davis i i always enjoyed um george hamilton George is synonymous with so many great moments in Irish sport. And actually having worked with him in, in Rio, the way he manages to 
rise to the occasion, you know, when it's a, a Thomas Barr coming down, you know, charging down the home straight looking for a medal. I think a lot of people would say George, you know, is, is the voice that they associate with so many great moments down through the years. So it definitely, I mean, I was proud to work with George. And in the UK, I would say probably Barry Davis. I have a question for you, Con. Um, how do you get on with the uh, Shamrock Corvus, uh Facebook uh, interviews? During the lockdown, um, the, the club have been trying to keep social media going. And, you know, they've had various interviews with players and so on. I've been interviewing past players about their best, uh, the best players that they played with, 1 to 11, from various uh, generations. And, and this week it was um, John Cody, who was part of the four in a row Rovers team in the 80s, which were the best League of Ireland team I ever saw by a country mile. Um, so it's been enjoyable. I mean, we do it on the Zoom, so I haven't seen any of them face to face, but thank God for Zoom, is all I can say. Um, because it's it's been a, a labour of love, you know. I've really enjoyed talking to all these guys. I have all their phone numbers now, which is great as well. Um, so I think for all the clubs uh, here, they've been doing their best to keep in contact with their support because it's very easy, I think, during a three month break like this, for things to drop off and people to almost forget. So to keep people engaged and keep them, uh, you know in contact with the club has been really important. So Rovers have been doing their best. I know Shelburne have been working hard with that as well. Some of the other clubs, Cork. Uh, Rovers had a table quiz one night and it was brilliantly organised by, a, I think actually it was one of the Cork City uh, fans who set it up. But it was all on, on Zoom and they had interviews with various players and everybody was involved. And it was done as a fundraising effort and they made, I think, three or four thousand euro on the night um, but it just keeps everybody in contact and you know that's important I mean we've had a few very sadly some great Shamrock Rovers fans uh, have died in the last few weeks um, of, of COVID and, and others other things um, so it's been a very sad time as well but um, hopefully you know we'll all be back in stadiums doing real matches at some point in the not too distant future you know I, I really miss it and seemingly, like uh, Shamrock is one of the uh, most progressive clubs for the last few years um, in Ireland. You know, being an outsider, like um, it seems like you know they they they're really pushing for the uh, the media side of the club. Like and having Shamrock Rovers TV is something they they want to reach out. You know, more or less to all the fans in Ireland. And there's a plan behind the scene as well. Or what, what's the situation with Shamrock Rovers TV? I don't know, Stefan. I don't know what the story is there. I do know that everything that's done at the moment is done voluntarily. Like there's no, um, nobody's been paid. Uh, so all the people who, who, both on the technical side and on the, uh, any other side presentation or whatever, it's all voluntary. Again, I just think it's a way of, of getting the, the, the club's message out there. And I think it's something that every club should be striving to do. I think Rovers probably, dare I say, do it, a bit better than, than some other clubs, uh, but I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> but I do think it's important. I, I really do that, that the clubs try and utilise that as much as possible. Just one other thing as well, because you obviously worked on podcasts for a couple of years, the greatest uh, league in the world, which sadly at the moment, the podcast is uh, not with us right now. No, we were relegated. <laughs> Yeah, I worked with Conan Byrne uh, and I think our, our USP was the fact that he was still playing in the league at the time. But it was 
it was basically the FAI who were funding the thing and paying for the studio and all that kind of stuff. And when the upheaval happened, the FAI started looking at all their costs and um, that was one that fell by the wayside, unfortunately. We are looking at maybe bringing it back um, with, you know, independently. Um, this season now might be a bit of a write-off, so it could be next season. But I have to say, I don't know if any of you have um, worked with Conan before. He's an absolute gem of a guy to, to work with. So knowledge the amount of homework, talking about homework uh, that we do for matches and stuff, the amount of homework he did coming in in terms of knowing his stats on all the players and stuff was a real eye-opener for me. And um, when eventually uh, his career as a player finishes, he'd be a, he, I, I hope he goes into coaching because he'll be a great coach. He's, he is a school teacher by day and um, just has a great empathy with people and his knowledge of the game is second to none. So it was a joy working with him. I know you guys all love each other, but... Uh, I loved working with him as well, I have to say. And hopefully I'll be back. Hopefully we'll be challenging you in the uh, podcast charts again in the not too distant future. What, down in National League Division 5? Come on. <laughs> oh, no. You, listen, your Premier League, your, your Premiership, no doubt about it. Con, thank you very much. We love you too. And actually, it would be really nice for that to come back. It was a really good listen. So, yeah, well, thanks. Hey, take care and um, obrigado. I was going to say Donada, but that's not Portuguese. I need help with that. <laughs> the Iberian Peninsula, at least. Cheers, guys. So just to say as well, by the way, recording's been delayed a little bit this time around because an old radio colleague of mine, Jordan McCarthy, is doing a podcast called Leeside Lives. Generally, they're about 30 minutes long. And because my mother's from Cork and I've worked in radio in Cork before, he penciled me in as a guest. So that's fine. As I say, the duration of his podcast is usually 30 minutes not with me. Um, your phone's going to be full if you download that edition. So, sorry, everyone. Why always me? Oh, that reminds me, Stefan. What's Balotelli up to today? Well, I don't know, but it seems not going really well for Balotelli. If you look at, you know, his tracking records since 2010, moving from Milan to Manchester City, but, you know, nine clubs in nine years. Goofy. You know, going from Man City to Milan, Liverpool going back to Milan on loan and going to Nice, Marseille and Brescia, his hometown basically, and things are not going well at all in Brescia. He missed a few training sessions uh, at home basically via Zoom, which is, you know, uh, training, you know, uh, uh, colleagues. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it seems, you know, there will be a kind of a divorce between Brescia and Massimo Asselino, the owner and president of the club, who more or less clear that, you know, while Balotelli is not part of the plan of uh, Russia. And uh, speculation goes that uh, he's looking at to move to Brazil and to play for a club in Brazil. I don't know exactly the club, but uh, again, you know, Mario Balotelli, uh, a very, very talented player, but never fulfills potential, especially with uh, his attitude, you know, on and off the pitch. Probably uh, one of the nightmares a manager could have uh, to uh, in the dressing rooms, Balotelli. Definitely uh, difficult to control. Ever-decreasing circles. It's just a pity that the current Brescia owner doesn't still own Leeds, Demetra, because would you be interested in seeing him teamed up with their current boss? No. Thank you very much and good night, everybody.